Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. An Erio's original. I like pretty things, so mm-hmm. I, when I when I create my look, I like to make it beautiful. But then I have to step back and be like, yo, you're still a dude dressing up. There is a, an incredibly explicit sex scene in Purple Rain, which I saw with my dad. Oh my god! It was the first time I'd ever seen anybody touch a vagina on film. Yes, and sitting next to my father. Oh, no. It's taking over my dreams, waking me out of my sleep. I think I'm coming apart. Welcome to the Margaret Show. I'm Margaret Show. We are the podcast where we talk to people you know and people you should know. Today, we talk with the incredible Manila Luzon. I haven't seen you since the uh, Hollywood Forever screening of Hocus Pocus. Uh, oh, <laughs> has it been that long? It's, no, it's not been that long because I saw you in Montreal at Pride. Oh my goodness, that's right. That's you right. Were, you were because I didn't see you. Wait, did I see you? We you were, were like you saw. Well, you shouted me out, so I'm assuming yes, you saw me. I saw you on social media. Mm-hmm. I think, and I saw you in the audience. I was in the. You audience. were in the pit. I was in the VIP section, and then you came on, and I literally like dropped everything. I ditched all my friends, and we like ran down. <laughs> I was. I was um, that's where I saw drunk you. and I was probably on something and I, I was having a great time. So it was Montreal Pride and I ran down and I, I was so excited. I'm to so see glad. You. That's right. I saw you from the stage and uh, it was kind of a weird thing because it was like we had to leave that night to go to another gig somewhere else. And then but I was so excited to see did you do, do the show there. Did you do the, sh- the pride there? Um, yeah, I did pride in Montreal. And then I had done a photo shoot that day. That's why I was in drag. So oh, I, had, fun. I had come after the shoot and I came That's to so see That's so great. You. I'm so glad. I mean, it's like one of those things where it's just like, we all are so busy now mm-hmm. that the only time we can catch a glimpse of each other is like from the stage, from from the VIP section, from the from the here, from the there. It's yeah. like always moving, always grooving. Yeah. But it's good. Yeah, you were fantastic. It was Thank it was you. really cool. It was, it was really fun. cool to see you doing your thing in front of all those people. Yeah. It was pretty cool. And it, but f- the funniest thing to me, actually, about that day was the sign language interpreter. Oh, yeah. Girl, it's she so was funny. trying so hard to keep up. And there was this one point where you were probably talking about putting your finger in a butthole. And yeah. she had to tap out. She was just like, <laughs> she was like, I can't sign this anymore. <laughs> she was so 
funny. It's always funny to uh, work with the um, interpreter. It's yeah. always, I mean, it's like one of those really fun things about doing like prides. And I mean, what's your favorite pride so far? Oh, gosh. They're, they're all like always like all such best. a sloshed mess it's of, great. of memories. It's that, so many things. Yeah. yeah. Prides are always so extra and fun. What was your first gay pride? Oh, the first gay pride was probably New York City. Mm. Uh, gay pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was, it was before RuPaul's Drag Race mm-hmm. and I was, you know, on a float. And I think that's the best way to see the entire New York City. Were you on like a Gappa float or was it a um, <laughs> sticky rice float? Or? I don't remember. All I know is that the float that we were supposed to be on, like they didn't get the right paperwork. Mm-hmm. So they were like, uh, we can't have a float. Uh, so they just like rented like a U-Haul truck and they just kind of decorated it really quick. Oh, good. And I remember um, I had fought for a, a place to sit because mm-hmm. I was in drag, right? Mm-hmm. And I sat was sitting on the speaker. Mm-hmm. And because the speaker was vibrating the entire time, yeah, um, I was sitting on it and my panty line had literally like buzzsawed its way into my skin so i oh. had these two i had these two like scars on the oh, ass no. from my panty line from oh, no. it vibrating on the speaker oh <laughs> wow like, it was quite memorable that's really that's that's quite a lot I, but new york pride i'm always on the gap afloat or i'm always on a float with a bunch of other asian people and they're like um jumping on bamboo Doing like a dance. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like it's always like either the yeah gay Asian Pacific Islander float. I, wa- I don't know why it's like a pass. Is there a passport float? Do you, are you too? You're too young to remember passport. Passport was the magazine that was the uh, periodical that would uh, kind of co- coincide with the clientele at the end touch, which was a bar on Polk Street that catered to uh, men who adored Asian men. Oh, I didn't go to that place, but I <laughs> I used to I used to start um, I started doing drag, um, and I would go to the Web in New York City, which is also very similar. It's oh, basement bar, Asian gay Asian bar, but it was like these like scrawny Asian like go go dancers and these old white guys that yeah. would, like come in there and yeah, that was them. what passport passport was all like photos from the rice paddy. <laughs> Of really cute, like Asian boys in like, um, you know, working the patty. And um, also, like, it was really a, a big deal, too, if you had a big butt and you're an Asian guy. Oh, yeah. They love I mean, a big butt. Yeah, because Asians have flat asses. Yeah. But if you had like a muscular, like a hard, like a army butt, it was really like so sexy. I think anyone likes a big, hard army butt. I no? like a big, hard butt. I mean, I don't know. Like, I like a, I like a soft butt too. Like a nice, like a, a wide expanse of ass. I think my <laughs> ass is very flat. Asian people have flat asses. I don't know why. What is that about? I think it's to to balance out the 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 face because that's yeah. also flat. Like that flat. So we don't tip over. <laughs> Flatness. <laughs> but um, I know it's like all my life is like just contouring my nose contouring my nose and now contouring my ass yeah i wish i could contour my ass more in the 80s and 90s like a flat ass was everything yeah you'd want to have a long flat yeah heart-shaped butt but but now it's like about the um voluptuousness yeah i think j-lo changed everything she She really did she made it like oh you want a big round butt do you use foam Uh, yeah my my butt is always padded i mean i'm a drag queen so i get to create my own shape so it's great um which you always have like a beautiful hip line. Like it's a very Shaparelli. Yeah. Like whenever I see you, I'm like, oh, it's the Dior new look. 
Yeah, I because I like that that Barbie doll where it just like comes in real hard and mm-hmm. then it juts out mm-hmm. for the hips. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like my my shape that I like. I love it. Yeah, because my it. my my regular shape is just straight down. Well, you're just like a model off duty. Yeah, you're just like a supermodel off duty. You're just like yeah, supermodel off duty eating potato chips, which is cute. I mean, I guess that's yeah. the best. Sure, but it's like um, when you get like that sort of look. Now your look is actually very. Um, it is very high fashion. It's very oh, thank like you. the 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 look is. It is informed. It's a little bit like you could be evangelista like related. Like it, I feel like that when I look at you, you're giving me like some. Shalom Harlow, mm. little bit of like Linda Evangelista. Oh yeah. Who do you who do you look to when you're creating? Well, I do lo- I do love Linda Evangelista because she has these features that are kind of like borderline on like very feminine, but mm-hmm. also very boyish. So right. I, I like I like that place because it, it, I feel like it fits. It's it fits good. me because it's it's this in between spot. It's so feline too, mm. and it's also very um, architectural. So she has like these columns, like her body is like kind of like this beautiful like temple that she's like arranging for your like worship. I think that's a a really good aspirational like point of view for drag. It's like, okay, let's let's elevate this, you know, because drag used to be like not what it is now. Like definitely not. It was like, I mean, it was camp and it was fun, but it wasn't about creating these like archetypes of beauty. You know, it was making fun of the archetypes of beauty. But I think your your thing is really shifting that into like, let's like look to this and use humor, but also appreciate the beauty. I like pretty things. So Mm -hmm. I when I when I create when I create my look, I like to make it beautiful. But then I have to step back and be like you know, you're still a, a dude dressing up. But you're still a comedian. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, I guess so. So I have to like put that little like sense of humor into everything I do. Just right. to just to let you know that I'm not taking this too serious. Because you can, yeah. when you get into like this whole like, oh, I'm a fashion queen. I'm a look queen. I'm, um, I feel like it kind of puts you in a, in a place where you t- start to take yourself very seriously. I feel like sometimes fashion can take itself seriously. Yeah, but what you do is always really like welcoming to the eye. Like it's a funny thing. Like it's kind of like um, almost as if you could have been on the old version of laughing. You yeah. know, that's sort of like the, the uh, Goldie Hawn kind of like the beauty that's also like cross-eyed. Like the beauty yeah. that's like surprising you with jokes and kind of body humor. But it's also innocent. Yeah, because beauty is great, but there's I feel like with with beauty there's always going to be someone be- more beautiful or younger and prettier than you. So, I like to nip it in the bud and and just be like, "Okay, well we're f- we're funny too." Mm-hmm. Just so that there's you get both sides. Yeah, that's always my favorite as as well too because like it's it's great to have the humor and also be able to present the looks. Yeah. Which are really I think they're really vital and important. And then you have this with the doll here that you've brought the Manila doll which has the period dress which I think is actually really beautiful. Like this dress actually works as like you could have worn that to like an Amfar gala. <laughs> in like <laughs> You know, it, I guess maybe uh, 2004 or five. It is the period dress. Uh, now, you got some um, when this fir- when you first emerged in the period dress. I remember this episode 
where people were really they were like what because it is a it's an artful representation of a menstrual pad yeah well there was um on i had been trying to collect a whole bunch of like different ideas when i went back on drag race all stars four mm-hmm. i wanted to come up with some ideas and they would they gave us a list of uh runway looks and one of the runway looks was padded for the gods and i was like mm. oh gosh i don't know what's padded mm-hmm. so i was like oh maxi pads are padded so mm-hmm. i was like well i have a maxi pad dress that i had that i'd done many years ago mm-hmm. and so i was like let me just make it out into like a full beautiful gown because yeah. i just think that there's a like a cool juxtaposition of of something that's made to be beautiful but it also like represents something that's like something that people are like oh that's not we're not supposed to talk about that or not supposed to see that or it's yeah. disgusting or something like that. So I wanted to like show something that people don't see as beautiful and make it beautiful. It is beautiful. So when, yeah, when I was designing the dress, I, I was like, oh, well, a maxi pad has that beautiful curvy shape that's mm-hmm. supposed to contour to the woman's body. And, yes. And I just love uh, the bold colors between white and red. So I know. And I love that. It, you know what it could have been? It looks to me like an Armani gown. Like it's very Armani or like a classic Americana like Bill Blass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is really great. Like, this could have, like, come off of Karen Mulder's back. <laughs> and I love your blonde. Like, your blonde here, and it's very, like, the look is, it's very, it's you know, it's very Karen Mulder. <laughs> and it's very classic Americana. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. It was a very iconic look. I was, um, I was sad I wasn't able to wear it on TV. But mm-hmm. um, I was, I posted the photo that I, I took of myself in it. Um, Instagram and it, it was a huge hit. And yeah, and it's a meme, meme to the gods. Yeah, memed and memed and memed, and I think it's so fun. Like I do do like quite a lot of um, RPDR on Insta. <laughs> so it's like a very. I see this actually like every couple times a day. It's so I crazy. See your image it's a couple always times. popping. It's always popping up. It's great. It's uh-huh. so fun. Now I want to see like. What drew you to initially go to Drag Race? I mean, it's, of course, now such an industry and such a yeah. huge one. But what was the initial, like, sort of feeling of like, oh, I want to do this? What, how did you get involved? Well, when the show first came on the air, it was like, well, anything that has any kind of drag, right? I, I watched mm-hmm. because there isn't much. There isn't. There or at least before there wasn't Yeah, there much. wasn't. Um, so when the show came out, I was just, I was just like, great. But I was also dating Sahara at the time and she had auditioned for the first season. Mm-hmm. She didn't make it on the first season. So we watched the first season and we're like, oh, okay, cool. This is really cool. And then when they had a uh, second season, she auditioned for that. Mm-hmm. And because we had been dating and she was, Sahara was the, the drag queen of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just kind of doing it more of like as a hobby. Mm-hmm. I let her kind of go forth and, and audition for the show and when she made it on the show we were really excited and we got herself together and we were really excited and then when she came home early um, I was like oh that, that's too bad mm-hmm. so I was like well let me audition because I was watching it and she was telling me the stories about like uh, like the friendship she made and like all the different things that they were doing and it just sounded really fun mm-hmm. so I went because it sounded like it was a fun project to do yeah yeah. yeah. So yeah. then I auditioned and I made it on and it was it was so much fun. Yeah, and high pressure. It was a lot of pressure, but uh, for some reason, like I guess on the first season I was on season 3, uh it was the perfect storm because a lot of the challenges were to make drag. Right. 
um, to create a costume or something like that, which is something that I excelled in because yeah. before uh, drag has become, uh, well, drag is now really big and popular and people have really high expectations. But back then it was like a little bit easier to get away with hot gluing some mm-hmm. dresses together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I had a lot of fun just cutting stuff up and making costumes. And yeah. Doing, Cause that's what I, that's what I did in my, in my apartment in New York city. I just right. hot glued some random dresses and, you know, yeah. bedazzled them to make them like fancier than they actually were. But it's like that show is so interesting because it's actually like a combination of America's next top model project runway, last comic standing uh-huh. and put that together with like a good dose of a just, um, intense like desire to really excel like it's it's all of these expertise areas but you have to be good at all of them yeah it's such a trip to like watch and you go through with it with everybody too like you get really emotional you get attached to certain people and Mm -hmm. and then when the all-stars it's like you do it and it's exponentially harder. Oh my God, it's so much harder. It's because when so you first go on, no one knows who you are, so mm-hmm. they don't have any expectations from mm-hmm. you. Um, when I went back to All Stars, it was a lot of pressure because I was the runner-up on the on season three. And so when I came back, I was like, well, if I don't win I'm or get runner-up, I'm doing worse than I did before. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot, of, a lot more pressure. Yeah. I think the hardest part was is that when I went on the show the first time, Everything I owned in drag, no one really ever saw it before because mm-hmm. they didn't know who I was. Yeah. But by the time I went back to All Stars, every outfit that I've ever worn up until that point has mm-hmm. been seen at some point. Yeah. And if you do, if you repeat something um, or you don't give them something new, like they get bored. Yeah. You know, so I was like, oh, gosh, I have to like redo everything. I had to buy all new wigs, all new yeah. shoes, all new yeah. drag. Everything. So it became uh, even more... It, more difficult because you're just like, okay, I have to really like step my pussy up. F- absolutely. I mean, I think my idea is all scars, which is everybody who got voted off first. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Combined with all of the winners of all stars, helping them coach, coaching them and oh. then judging them at the end. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. So it would be like sort of like most improved mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, you know, and then going through the history of like whoever was like first off. Yeah. And then taking all of those uh, drag queens and then like having all of the winners really turn them out. Yeah, I think that that would be really cool. I mean, yeah. I don't even think that you need the winners, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think that if you just get some of these queens uh, that got kicked off first. Yeah. I think the queens that got kicked off first are probably more famous than any of the queens that got kicked off second or third. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. I think that I think that would be a really interesting season. Because the watch. first one was always like it, it's always kind of like um the first one off is usually somebody that is like not from New York or LA or Dallas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Orlando. Or somebody who's like kind of like uh usually they have a little bit less experience. I think from what I from what I gather, or they're not the pageant queens. And they're not the uh, comedians. Although I guess it was like Kelly Mantle went home first on season uh, six, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's pretty awesome. Yeah. They, I mean, they, the thing is, they're all great. Yeah. Everybody's great. Everybody who actually makes it on the show is great. You know, there's something about them. But I think with, with, with the first, the person they kick off first is because it's the first episode and they want it to be the most dramatic episode right. to like really hook, hook you. Yeah. Sometimes they really send home a, 
a bitch that's like you're like oh no yeah i want that like shangela they they had her back it raises the stakes let's raise the stakes if someone that's you think like oh how did how did she go home first yeah there's no way and then anybody's anybody could be next Mm -hmm. is is there a favorite that you have like over you know from watching like who is who's like your ultimate like i think for me would might be i love you of course i love raja Mm -hmm. which um you know she i i love i just love i love sutan and then i think bianca bianca dario i think i've worked with bianca the most yeah i've done a lot of like comedy shows with her yeah um but who's your who's your favorite Ooh, um, probably Latrice Royale. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's just something about her, just like, just energy. Just when you watch her on TV, I mean, her laugh is just infectious. Yeah. And then you also just want to like run through the TV and like hug her. Yeah. There's yeah. something very grand and maternal about her mm-hmm. presence that is, is like, you know, it's, it's, she's a queen. She's like, it's a queen-like presence that is like exactly. royalty, but also very comforting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you see her live and in person, it, that's a completely different energy that you get. And it's, it's, it's like a spiritual, like, m- movement, you mm-hmm. know, when you, when you get to watch her perform and lip sync live, it's like crazy larger than life. And yeah. It's like, yeah. It like that's, transforms I love the it. audience. It's that's crazy. why I love Untucked. Yeah, Untucked is Untucked is a really really fun show. Actually, I, I I literally just watch sometimes the the episodes of Drag Race just so that I know what the heck is happening right. in Untucked. So you can see Untucked is is really where you see the the queens really break down. You know, they're really showing like who they really are. They're mm-hmm. really, like you can really tell if they're stressed or if they're uh, or if you're rooting for them to like win. And it's right. it's a, where you really learn about the queens. I think the most you do, and it's also that's when you really connect with them the most. Like, and you really feel what they're going through, or that's when you really start to hate them. Yeah, because they're like you're reacting like, bitch, weird. Bitch, yeah. no, bitch. Like you know, like is there anybody that you really like? I don't. I'm not mm-mm. like well, <laughs> no I, I I kind of feel like I mean there's that one um the Aja breakdown the Linda Evangelista mm-hmm. breakdown where she was mm-hmm. like oh you're you're beautiful you're perfect you're Linda Evangelista mm-hmm. um I I love that because it was real mm-hmm. and it, you could tell like the frustration and there wasn't yeah. so, there wasn't a drag queen trying to put this perfect persona up for the audience it was mm-hmm. just a person like really like venting their frustrations and I, I i think that was it was really cool now it's something that she's probably uh wasn't the proudest well hers was in her proudest moment but it mm-hmm. was this moment that was like god i just can't there's nothing that i'm doing that's, that's that's getting the attention of these judges and it's frustrating and it's it's nice to see someone just being being themselves and like yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. and it's interesting like now too with the show is that What's happened is now you actually have a generation of of drag queens who have grown up with the show. Yeah. And now they're coming at it with next level shit. Like they're so good. Like everybody that's like now and then especially all stars, of course, everybody is so good at it because you guys have had like 15 years. Yeah, we've had practice to really like hone this in and imagine and like see what this is about and what you can do. Yeah. You know, so every subsequent winner becomes even more like let's raise the stakes even more in terms of like the quality of the art form. Yeah. There are a lot of people that are starting drag because they had watched right. Drag Race. Right. Um, and they're pursuing this drag race 
niche you mm-hmm. know like th- before it was like oh drag queens were just doing what drag queens were doing like whatever they could do mm-hmm. and now it's like oh i'm going to be doing drag so that i can get on drag race so that i can do well on drag race mm-hmm. so a lot of the new drag is has been kind of defined by the what the show expects right from expects from drag queens yeah yeah you know? but it's cool it's like the um also like the artistry that you're seeing it's like you're also seeing major innovation with like especially with like cosmetics and makeup and the way that you know a lot of people from the show are putting out their lines yeah. and like talking about it and 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 um you know doing collabs with big companies and so you know to me it's like a real benefit to everybody out there who even wears makeup you know yeah because i remember when i first started doing drag when i was in my te- uh, when i was like a teenager uh or like playing with makeup at least like there wasn't anything it was a clinique and it's like mm-hmm. different shades of mauve right you know different beiges it was like the ultimate to the naked yeah that's like, all we had i couldn't even i couldn't even find like I remember trying to look for a black eyeshadow and like mm. the best I could get when like the drugstore was like a dark silver gray. Right. You know, right. and so now you can get any color mm-hmm. um, like the makeup, ha- like the makeup is now like tailored to drag to yeah. like, this costumey, theatrical, dramatic style of makeup. Right. Before when it was like, oh, it's like a sheer... Oh, right, like, we, like coverage. We didn't know what we were doing with makeup, and now I think that Drag Race and the the lasting effect of thinking about makeup has really shifted in the way that we view beauty, and um, that it's sort of it's beyond gender now. Yeah. It has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with art form and like let's make um, suitable paint. I remember when I first started, it was like, look, if you weren't if you weren't kind of a pretty man, mm-hmm. like you weren't going to be that pretty of a drag queen because like the style of makeup was like, oh, you know, have like a smoky eye, maybe like a little bit of a cut crease mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of brushing your eyebrows and maybe you'll overdraw your lip. Yeah. But now it's like full on like Cirque du Soleil, mm. Broadway cats makeup. Yeah. Like on these people, they have like exclamation points on their noses and like, you know, <laughs> they have like, they're drawing the individual hairs in their eye- yeah, eyebrows. Incredible. And it's, incredible. it's so crazy and it's, it's artistic. There's mm-hmm. like, uh, there's like so much more room for expression in, and, and different styles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that it can be very harsh Mm. And like you can have a hard line and you have a person like Trixie Mattel with whatever her makeup is doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before it was like, oh, you want to, you'd want to look like a woman. Now it's like, oh, you want to look like a drag queen, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it, I think the, the aesthetic of drag is is has changed so much from when I had first started. Right. Well, you're seeing like, yeah, these things of like, let's interpret drag as not just um a woman, but like with Trixie, who is a friend of the show and also um, a great, great, great artist, she she's like, let's look like animation. Let's yeah. like bring like the the just really, really like stylized and you know change the idea of what this is even happening. Like, what is this? Like, it's not. It's gone beyond like kind of what we look at as drag yeah. and and into something very different, but also very much the same. Like, it's a it is drag, but it is like. It's comedy, it's music, it's art, it's fashion, it's 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 kind of like just about beauty. Yeah, and that's what um, well, that's what I like to play with. I like my makeup to accentuate my features that I like that I already have because I like to make 
crazy faces. Mm -hmm. I feel like my face is really expressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it's actually my face isn't actually beautiful. I just can make a pretty face. You know what I mean? Like I I can make a silly face and I can make that that hot face. You know, mm-hmm. like you know all little Instagram guys who like, you know, they look like normal people, but then they do that one like furl the brown like, <laughs> you know, do that thing with their lip and they're like, Aww. oh sexy face. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's me in drag. So yeah. it's like, oh I'm gonna be oh I'm gonna put my like a gorgeous hot model face on, but then also it's like gonna be like, you know, I'm also Jim Carrey and I'm like in the mask. It's fun. Yeah. So. It's fun. I do think that you are a beautiful man, but it is also like, you know what it is? It's like screwball, screwball comedy beauty, like a 1930s beauty, yeah. like um, like a Judy Holiday, or like you know, like um, that kind of thing of like or Catherine Hepburn, where you can be like beautiful, but just de- also be funny. Yeah, and and Rosalind Russell, it's actually very close to Rosalind, Rosalind Russell, Russell, who is like the best. Um, and I loved I loved her uh, ability to be transformative, like you could be funny and sexy at the same time. You yeah. know, like Marilyn Monroe, who's the ultimate. It also reminds me of like soap opera, like K-dramas. It's got like the Korean soap opera kind of a feeling. Yeah. It's also telenovela. It's a kind of like Asian and, and Latino, like it's that, that kind of like a hyper real drama face. Kind mm-hmm. of. Are you are you looking to those those kinds of archetypes too? Uh, I, I am now. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Like in um, K dramas, it's like the faces are so dramatic but so beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's high drama and high high camp. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> have you done the Have you done the uh, the Philippines? Done shows there? Um. Yeah. I actually was in the Philippines last fall. Um. I did a show out there. Um. I love going to the Philippines. It's, I bet they go crazy. They go freaking wild. Yeah. I did a sh- um. I did a collaboration with the SM store out there, which is the biggest retailer in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And I did a show in the mall. Oh, my God. A free show at the mall for That's the holidays. Great. And it was a ton of fun. It was like crazy packed. I felt yeah. like I felt like Tiffany. I was, yeah. It's like really Britney. It's like they're shutting down the streets. Yeah. It was a free show, but you had to come in early and, and sign up. So people like didn't go to work. People weren't going to school. Right. Like, people were just at the mall. Yeah. And I was like, oh, geez, I feel kind of bad for these people. But uh, hopefully your boss is here with you. So <laughs> uh, they don't know that you're skipping work. But it was so much fun. Like, it's exciting. They were crazy. They were loud and they were screaming my name. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's so exciting. Did you get to meet Imelda Marcos? Have you met Imelda Marcos? Um, no, I have not. I don't know if I'd want to meet Imelda Marcos. I mean, it's, it's such a weird relationship that she has kind of with the world. Yeah, it's like a love-hate, mm-hmm. hate-love kind of thing. Yeah, but it's like definitely like, I feel like she would be a fan. I would hope so because I impersonated her. I on know on Snatch three. Game. Yeah. I know your 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 impersonation is so iconic. She's got to be a fan. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, I think so. I think that she's probably um she probably has a, a like a Google alert on her. I'm name. sure. So whenever I do Imelda Marcos, it's she's ex- probably like, Bing, oh, there's Mel Luzon doing she, me again. <laughs> she gets excited. She probably does. I'm sure. <laughs> so like, where are you going? Like, I, I mean, you're always on tour. You're always everywhere. Where are you going for 2020? What is on the roster for oh 2020? Oh my gosh. I have, uh, I, it's everywhere. So <laughs> many. still everywhere. I don't know how it's it possible, but you always are traveling, always working. And it's like, do you sleep? When do you go? I don't sleep. It's Actually, hard. Yeah, I just finished um, a Christmas tour. Yeah. And I literally came back after New Year's and I like slept for for four days. Yeah. Like, yeah, you'd have to. This is to. the first time I've actually left my house yeah. to come here to, to record this. It's a lot. I mean, it's like because you're just out there all the time. 
you know, like that's where the work is. It's always, you know, in some different city. Yeah. There's, it's, it's all over the world. My, my commute is always like on a flight to, mm-hmm. you know, Hong Kong right. or a flight to London. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of traveling. But I mean, it's, it's a blessing because I love to travel. Mm-hmm. And um, the further away that I travel, the, I guess the higher the price that I can charge. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're just touring everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I did three, four cities for Christmas, which was crazy. I have a, a little break now and then I'm going to go do a, a comedy tour in the UK. Oh, wow. That's yeah, which, awesome. Which should be fun. Yeah, really fun. Where can people find you on um, social media and find out about your shows and what you're doing? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Manila Luzon, and Instagram, Manila Luzon, and Twitter, Manila Luzon. I love it. All the Manila Luzons. Yes. Mm-hmm. You are the best. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now you know him from Big Bang Theory and Speechless, my conversation with actor-comedian John Ross Bowie. What's your dog's name? My dog's name is Sonny. Originally named for his disposition, but as he grows older, it's just getting more and more ironic. He got chewed up at the dog park in Silver Lake a few months back and has never oh. really been the same since. You know, he had to have like his ear put back on and stuff. Oh, no. Really awful. Oh, what really, happened? I, he got it. He was with our dog walker. He got attacked. The dog walker just rushed him to the vet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't actually, you know, it was a pit bull apparently mm-hmm. that was in with the small dogs mm-hmm. and shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to dump on pit bulls. You know, it no. depends on the owners. Yeah, so Sonny got all chewed up and came back with really what we can only call PTSD. Yeah. There's really no other term for it. Oh. He's just really cagey and aggressive now. Yeah. And... um he bit my my aunt over Christmas, and she's kind of right wing, so the world won't. But <laughs> it was like drew blood, and it was it was fucking terrifying for a moment there. Um, yeah, rescues are uh, they're a dice roll. You never really know. I mean, <laughs> there's certain things she doesn't like, uh, like horns cases, maybe a wheelbarrow, sometimes a broom. Okay, she will really go crazy if she sees a broom. Yeah. Somebody sweeping. Uh-huh. She will just really let him have it. But it's nice to have her uh, here at Sketchfest because a lot of the comics didn't have their dogs with them. Like yeah. you don't. Yeah. But you don't travel with Sunny. No. We well um, no, we don't, not as a rule. And especially not for I'm up here by myself. My wife and kids are at home. It's just better for him to be up there. He he's an okay traveler, but um I'm gonna leave him in LA for the yeah. uh, for, for the Sketchfest. Yes. Um, I mean it's a shame too because he's working on his on his tight five. If he could get some shape, he could get he could get seen. He he could get seen up here. There's people up here. People get discovered at. I mean, it's not you know Montreal in the aughts, but people get discovered up here. I like your uh, I like your show. I've been listening to your show when I found out I was going to do your your show. I listened to your show and I loved your um, the Tarantino episode was fascinating. He's so great, isn't he? It was fascinating. He's really interesting. And I knew that, Mm -hmm. but 
just the the level of I mean I think you asked maybe three questions mm-hmm. and he just went. He just goes. I mean, um when he and I were um hanging out in the 90s, we got the inventory of video archives which was his uh his video store, store that he worked yeah. at. And he had something like 8,000 movies. Oh, So we wow. watched a good amount of them. And every once in a while when I watch his films, I'll see something and I'm like, oh, I know where he, he got that. I know where he thought about that. Did you that. almost say ripped off? No. <laughs> Did you almost say ripped off? Because I thought I saw your mouth about to form an R. <laughs> it's more that like I could see the thought process behind what he would make. You know, like. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, that's Mandingo was a movie that we loved that yeah. we watched over and that over. That came up a bunch on yeah. the podcast, yeah. And um, Fat City was another one. There was, a, there was a couple of movies that we had to start over from the beginning. A surprising one was Showgirls, actually. Really? We uh, watched Showgirls in the theater. Mm-hmm. It was Quentin and myself and Scott Thompson. Oh. At- <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Who was yesterday. also on our flight yesterday, yes. yeah. And um, we watched uh, Showgirls, and then um, I think we had later acquired the... DVD of it and watched it again. That is a fascinating film because usually a film that bad is very poorly made. It's so beautiful. And that it's film. beautiful to look at. It's yeah. so well shot and yeah. it's got a palette mm-hmm. and there's nothing amateurish about the way it looks and it's Verhoeven like every camera is there beautiful. for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yet it's a mess. And yes. it's fascinating to me. But I I think the one part of the movie that I would leave out is when uh, Molly gets raped. Mm-hmm. That is the single most upsetting scene in a movie because it's totally, I guess it makes space, it bracks up the uh, sort of karmic debt so that she can beat up that sort of Michael Bolton guy. Yeah. But it also does, I, I just, I don't it, think you need that. I, it feels like a very cheap way to get us rooting for Nomi in, yeah. uh, in, a, in a very kind of, I, I, really, the only word that, word that comes to mind is vulgar. It's like you don't like. Okay, we get this guy's an asshole. We get that Molly's vulnerable, but there's a brutality in that scene that is unnecessary. And it's weird in a studio movie too to see it something is. that raw and disconcerting. I just watched um, Hardcore last week. Paul Schrader, George C. Scott. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. I haven't seen it in years. It's great. It really holds up. It's it's like they kind of remade it with I think it's called Eight Millimeter. With oh Nicolas right, Cage. Nicolas Cage. It's a sort of about the, the 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 myth of snuff films. Right, right. And it kind of runs through and and I think this was like probably more relevant in the seventies when this was made because maybe early 80s, because it was this thing of, like, do snuff films actually exist? Right. And do we know if that's a possibility? And um, and so it goes to the seedy parts of, I think, New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. and San Francisco. Oh, so wow. you have all this, like, Broadway street on there, and they go through, like, this dominatrix. There's a, there's quite a lot of kink shaming in it, which I don't agree with. Sure, but, sure. Um, it's really uh, I love that Schrader though in general I though I mean every I love him too but like there's a there's a whole like uh, you know the people are into this kind of thing this is a thing people are into <laughs> look at this you know there's always this kind of lurid like he's found something on his phone that he wants to show to you yeah you know? <laughs> which I love I mean there's but the the I love uh, the genre of film that goes into the seedy underbelly of like adult movie theaters and punk rock and yeah. girls wearing like rip tights and. Uh-huh. Sex workers and um, you know very big eye makeup. It's so funny. Uh, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not cool and I wasn't there, but I did grow up in Midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm 48, so I was born in 71, and I'm I'm you know I was there for 
no, I wasn't there for any of this. I was like, you know, 12 when Liquid Sky came out. It was mm-hmm. not my scene, but it was interesting to be like just around it. And there were parts of New York I was forbidden to go. And then by the time I was allowed to go, they weren't cool anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I lived right near the Deuce, but could only see it from a bus window. Oh, okay. I could not like, I was not like my, my mom was very could be very, very loosey-goosey, but she had one thing. Just I beg of you, don't go on 42nd between 7th oh, and 8th. This wow. is my one thing I beg of you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm coming home from CB's at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, she was incredibly forgiving about a lot of stuff. I watched the sunrise over Tompkins Square Park, which I will oh. never let my children do. Oh. But, but like, the deuce was one thing that was completely verboten to me. And yet, I watch movies like Liquid Sky or Desperately Seeking Susan or what's the one I just saw recently? Smithereens? Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, of course. Um, um, which is bleak. It's so bleak, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is a – it's almost like science fiction now. I mean, that world just does not exist. No. I mean, the New York of, of that era, and that's um, – is it Penelope Spiros? Smithereens or Susan, Susan Seidelman? Susan so, um, Penelope Spiros was strictly West right. Coast pretty much. You know? Right. Okay. So, Su- yeah, Smithereens is very bleak. And also, I mean, I think Desperately Seeking Susan is sort of a light take on that era, but uh-huh. still pretty pretty dark in its way. Yeah. And um, definitely, like, it's all of a comedy of errors. Like, that would never be able to make it today because everybody knows. It's like you have a description of Susan, but you don't have the photo. Right. So, of course, you're going to think Rosanna Arquette is Susan because she's this blonde that's this high yeah. wearing this jacket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny. Technology uh, uh, kills things. It really does. It's, it's funny how like every horror film now has to have a moment in Act One where we establish that e- phones either don't work or somebody forgot their phone. Right. You know, every horror movie has to have that. There's beat. no reception. Yeah. There's, oh, oh we're to, really out in the boonies here. You know? you and then, that, then we can get into Act Two. <laughs> but then to to grow up in New York City, then so you had Times Square. That's sort of like the the basic like it's Travis Bickle's New York uh-huh. City. Um, so you, would, yeah. you did you ever venture into any of the even though your mother outlawed Forty Second Street did you ever venture into any of those theaters? Well, it's not like any of the. I mean, those theaters were particularly intense, but there were lots of ways around it. There were grind houses in Queens you could go to. Mm. There were ground houses in Newark, which was a quick path train ride away. Mm-hmm. So I never went into. The theaters on 42nd Street, but I would see like sorority killer slasher movies on double features in Newark oh, or great. in Jackson Heights. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were, you know, there were sort of legal loopholes around my mom's edict yes. uh, against the deuce. What breaks my heart is that there was a window in the early 90s where the deuce got kind of emptied out because home video made the made the porno theater obsolete. Right. So you didn't have to watch pornography with strangers. You could mm-hmm. do it in the privacy of your own home. And a lot of those theaters closed and there was a there was a couple years there where all the billboards were a Barbara Kruger art installation. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. all had these cool little profound slogans on all of the yeah. billboards as you went down forty second street and my mom lifted her edict, and I was in my 20s by this point anyway, so it was, it, was, uh-huh. it was open season. And I was like, oh, yeah, something really interesting could happen here, man. They could, like, we could put, like, a revival house here, or mm-hmm. you could, you know, maybe get some sort of weird little off-Broadway theaters. And then Giuliani came in, and it just, it, it became increasingly impossible to be middle class there. And mm-hmm. it just swept out any possibility of living a sort of bohemian lifestyle. And everyone's always like, well, it's so much safer now. The crime is down. It's like there was a window in the 90s where 
the rent was still cheap and mm-hmm. crime was down. Yeah. There was a there was a little pocket there and we mm. blew it. You know what I love from that era though, and that I think is kind of a perfect film, not just a horror movie, not just a genre film, but the OG Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh yeah, you're right. Is a fucking masterpiece. It's a great movie. It's sonically perfect. It's crazy. It's not as violent as you think it is. No, but it's so terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. It is a it is a nightmare upon a nightmare. Yeah. But so much of it is done with sound. Yeah. And so much of it is done with. Like the, when that door slams, mm-hmm. I think Roger Ebert used to write about this all the time. When that, mm-hmm. when they, when he kills the the young, good-looking guy and pulls him back into the hallway and then slams the door shut, mm-hmm. and you're left with you know the horrors of your imagination mm-hmm. about what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, I will take that over any amount of blood spurt. You right. know, and I'm not a prude. And I love a good, I love a, a good, you know, gory Italian horror movie kill or something. Yeah. But but that moment in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I have it just burned into my skull. It's, it's so, so good. It's so good. And I love that most of it happens in the broad daylight. Yes. That's yeah. That's great, too. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he pulls her into, like, through the screen door. Mm-hmm. And it's just this lovely, you know, Terrence Malick, soft, warm, yeah. you know, burnt lighting everywhere. That is so goddamn effective. I was talking about, the like, the early 70s um, and horror with a buddy of mine the other day. And we got going on the Cronenbergs from that mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. On, um, I, I think the Brood is fantastic. Yeah. Um, is it is Rabid the one with Marilyn Chambers? Yes, it is. Yeah, Rabid's really Rabbit's good. Rabid's really good. Rabid's really. It's really, really good. good. I mean, I get into like a a giallo, just giallo phase. Yeah. Like I, I just watched um, your uh, Vice is a locked room and only I have the key. I beg your pardon. <laughs> I'm <laughs> writing this down right now. It's very good. It's um, your Vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Fantastic. I think that's the name. Fantastic. I bet it's lovely in Italian. It's beautiful. I bet it's beautiful in, the te- in Italian. It it's, loses um, something in translation. <laughs> it's a really good, um, it's a kind of a turn on Diablique, Diablique with... Um, uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, the French movie with the yeah. dead husband. Yeah. Sig- Simone Signoret. Yeah. And, um, it's, yeah, it's a really cool uh, take on that sort of movie. And is it a recent yellow? It's, uh, it's... No, I think it's like maybe 79, oh, okay. 78, but it's uh it's really good. It's with Edwige Fenech. Oh yeah. She's so gorgeous. Yeah, she's great. She's so yeah, beautiful. She's super hot, yeah. And she's in um Hostel. She's in Hostel 2. Yes. She's in Hostel 2 as the art teacher. And she looks just as good. Yeah, she looks fantastic in the Hostel. She looks so beautiful. I am a and this is where I lose I'm not going to lose you, but I I've lost a lot of conversations with people and people kind of look at me askance when I defend those first two Hostel movies. But I I think they're kind of magnificent. They are. I think they're. I love them. I think they're so well put together. Mm-hmm. Again, I think they get you know they get tarred with the brush of torture porn, which always makes me think like, oh, dude, you haven't actually seen any torture no, porn. No, no, <laughs> child, please. Yeah, you know, Google Japanese torture porn, and I then mean, we'll talk. You yeah, know? let's talk yeah. about the guinea pigs. Those yeah, I, are... I don't know what you're talking about, and oh. <laughs> a chill just went up my spine. I... Oh, well, the guinea pig movies are the ones that. Um, Charlie Sheen had come upon and realized that he was watching an actual snuff film, so he called the FBI. I think it was like in a cocaine panic. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Charlie Sheen calls the FBI. So Charlie Sheen has a line. Charlie Sheen has a line, and someone crossed Somebody it. Somebody crossed it in, I'm a, yeah, the uh, a Flower of Blood and Guts. I think that was the one. Jesus Christ. It's called Guinea Pig 3, and it's just, um, it is like torture porn on Looks like VHS. I mean, oh, it looks God. like it was shot on VHS or oh, something like that. But uh, yeah, he called the FBI in and they were like, oh, no, no, this is just a movie. <laughs> 
Oh my god, I love the idea of Charlie Sheen being like, I've seen too much. Yes, now it's too much. <laughs> my dad took me one time he had a fight with my mom and then he took me to um a rep house here, like a, a cut rate movie theater. We watched here, San Francisco. In San Francisco. Or, okay. And we watched a double feature of Jaws and Clockwork Orange. Gee. I was probably like eight. That's early. <laughs> it wasn't good. That's early. I was so scared. That's early. I was so oh, scared. Oh golly, that's early, Margaret. So it wasn't it wasn't the best choice. <laughs> he didn't really think about it. Um, but yeah, that that whole thing was like, it was not a good movie to see with your parents, I guess, or with your child. I, I It's funny, I was talking uh, with somebody else about terrible moments in film watching with your parents. Mm-hmm. And there's an incredibly explicit sex scene in American Werewolf in London, which I saw with my mom. Ooh, mm-hmm. There is a, an incredibly explicit sex scene in Purple Rain, which I saw with my dad. Oh, my God. You remember that? Yes. You remember that? <laughs> Opening weekend. Oh. And like, it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody touch a vagina on film. Yes. And I'm sitting next to my father. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Purple Rain is a good movie. I like it. It's it's got this weird. I mean, it's the '80s, so of mm-hmm. course it's got an undercurrent of misogyny. If we we apparently were just terrified of women in that era, yes. But like, there's a there's a laugh. There's a, a scene that's clearly played for laugh where um, Morris and Jerome throw a woman into a dumpster. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's weird. Mm-hmm. But um, but I mean, you can't argue with that. You can't argue with those concert scenes. As far as like music concert films, there's very few that I could say. Maybe um, uh, a music war. That's kind of yeah. the um Urban it, Music War, yeah, sure. Like what is it like the um damned and exploited and the go go's are in it? Is it is that the one? Oh, um Urban Music War is X, Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo. Okay. It's a lot of LA. Yeah. Um Oh, and then the Decline, the Decline of Western, Western Civilization, Civilization, I was those about are, to say. Those are great. Those are really great. And it's funny, I took my my wife is not Particularly into into punk rock, but when we moved to LA, they did a screening of the, of the first decline with Penelope Spheris and Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks doing oh, wow. a Q and A afterwards. Amazing. And that's one of those movies where the concert footage is dynamic and exciting and awesome, and and the documentary aspect is so interesting and so weird that mm-hmm. you really you don't have to be a fan of the music to get a right. lot out of that movie. There's a lot yeah. of people who love that movie who could couldn't possibly care less about punk rock, but it's so it's such a weird time capsule mm-hmm. of that era. Yeah. And I don't know anybody who calls himself a Catholic a Catholic discipline fan, but the Claude Bessie stuff is the best stuff in the movie. <laughs> I have great news for anyone, for everyone. There is no such thing as new wave. New wave is what you say when you don't want to get kicked out of the party and have your coke taken away. <laughs> that whole thing is amazing, yeah. and it's and she loved it. She had a great time, mm-hmm. and and you know Keith Morris is is settling into his elder statesman of punk rock thing so well. And it was uh, it was an amazing night out in Los Angeles. And again, I just moved there. I had Did you just... go to? The, was it at the Egyptian? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Cinematheque. They um, Chris D is the programmer, uh-huh. or he was forever. He is the lead singer of the Flesh Tones. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, he, he did the Q and A. Yeah, he conducted the Q and A. He was always um, doing these great um, screenings there, like that. Yeah. 
But I actually, the, the decline ones, I like the metal one the most. Really? It's so gross. It's so gross. I love it. And it's so, there's so much of it that's <laughs> that's kind of staged. Yeah. Like they have Gene Simmons in the lingerie shop with yeah. like the models traipsing around him. And then it's Paul like, Stanley in the bed. It's so <laughs> gross. <laughs> it's so gross. But it's so funny. Like I think it's, I, I think it's really, actually it's a very, again, another snapshot of that era. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. It's funny. I just saw Kiss this year or last year. I, I saw him. I took my I took my ten year old to see Kiss. That's great. And um, because the thing, uh, the dirty little secret about Kiss is that they're children's music. It is. It's straight up children's it is. music. It is. And but it was delightful. Yeah, it rocks. He, he, they're great. It, it we had such a good time, and we were watching. Stanley get up there and do his, let's hear this side of the arena, let's hear this side <laughs> of the arena, and it's all cliches, but then you stop for a moment, if you know anything about your history, you realize that these are cliches because mm-hmm. Kiss told us they were cliche. Kiss yeah. created these cliches. Right. You're, right. I mean, you're like, oh, this is just three-chord folk music. No, yeah, that's Woody Guthrie up right. there. You know, it's like, this is the... This is patient zero for mm-hmm. so much of that arena rock bullshit, mm-hmm. and they're still around, and you yeah. get to, to experience it as a primary historical source. It's so great. And it was so funny, because I went there, and I thought, like, oh, this is so badass. I'm taking my son to see Kiss. Uh-huh. Check me out. I'm taking my kid to see Kiss. Everybody had their kids there. And there were like three generations of Kiss fans sitting all around That's us. Beautiful. It was really kind of lovely. That's really beautiful. It was a really fun night out. That's a really good fun night out. I think that, yeah, definitely. And that, that era of rock is good. And the raspberries, I think that like right now I'm in a musical thing where um, – it's, yeah, what are you listening to right now? It's you, like Raspberries, The Records. Yeah. Um, uh, Starry Eyes? Yes, Starry them? Eyes. Yeah. Yes. John Wick and um, the, the Records. Um, a lot of uh, stuff like The Nerves. The Nerves, the original hanging on the telephone. Yeah. So it's like 1978 to 1981 is kind of my sweet spot power pop Yeah, era. I love that stuff. That's my I jam. I love that stuff. Love that it. is a fin- And it's a really fun era in... It's a great era in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really fun era in Britain. Mm-hmm. You've got sort of that Gang of Four post-punk thing going on, yeah. which isn't particularly hooky, Mm-mm. but it's interesting. Yeah. But the guys who took that and then made it hookier, like XTC um, to I a certain XTC, extent. Yeah. yeah, they're love fantastic. Them. But um, uh, Graham Parker, Joe Jackson, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of that early Elvis Costello, that's probably my favorite era of British songwriting is that whole – that pocket, uh, different in Tilbrook. That, that oh, pocket I love. In there. Yeah, I love. I love. I love Squeeze so much. Like they're um, anything that is kind of East Side Story. Yeah. from that record yeah. and that era. I mean, it's a skinny tie thing. Yeah, I think it's kind of like. Um, it's any band that was on Fridays. Yes, not SNL. that's a terrific rule of thumb. <laughs> that is a fantastic litmus test. Yes. Fridays booked incredible bands because like they pile and- they couldn't get. They couldn't get what SNL got, right. so they went like one record, one tier of record sales down. Yes. and there's amazing, amazing. So it's like the Pretenders, it's like uh, Split Ends, yeah. It's um, all of these great like British bands. I mean, it, it is sort of like the top of new wave. Before you get uh, letters, I'm gonna we're gonna acknowledge together that Split Ends are actually from New Zealand. They are. And so we're not they gonna are. get we won't well, get angry tweets from there's anybody. There's a couple of members that later members that are actually Australian because okay. Paul Hester. Uh, was in the latter version that became Crowded House. Oh, okay. And half of Crowded right. House is Australian. Oh, all right. So that's Mark Seymour and Paul Hester, uh, who's passed away. Neil Finn is, is, Neil is, uh, is New is, Zealand. Yeah, is New okay. Zealand. And Neil is like, uh, he's actually moved back to Auckland. 
Oh, no kidding. Um, so now he's definitely very NZ. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but but there's some there 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 there's some Australians there. But then also like I think men at work really uh, were amazing as well. Is there anything like that? What is your musical passion right now, other than um, the the Columbia Records? <laughs> <laughs> right, other than the stuff I was listening to yeah. when I was uh, when I was, uh, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, and I'm going to I'm going to go into my my Apple Music, and I'm going to see what I've been listening to yes. recently. Let's see what the algorithm is is. What is the algorithm up? sent my way? The algorithm has sent my way. Oh, um, uh, I just made the connection with the Paragons, late '60s um, Rocksteady group from mm-hmm. Jamaica, mm-hmm. and they do the original "Tide Is High." Mm-hmm. Okay. That was the that was that's a Paragons cover okay. that Blondie uh, did. Um, that led me over to some of the New York ska from the '80s. Mm. That I was there was a big uh, ska scene in the '80s when I was starting to go to CB's. Yeah. And the reason I was coming home so late is because a, a really fun local band called the Toasters would play once a month. Okay. At at CB's and they'd go out like 1.30 in the morning and it was just this delightful sweaty mess. Uh, I get that because in the in the 80s I went through a phase where my oh, the only band was Operation Ivy. So oh, okay. That was a West Coast Were you stop. up here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were, they were massive Bay Area. Yes. Yeah. Very big. And Op Ivy went on to be rancid. Yes. Or chunks of them did anyway. Yes. Yeah. San Francisco had an amazing punk scene. Oh and then um, you know what I've been doing a lot I sound so much cooler than I actually am. There's also a ton of show tunes in here. Um, there's some 80s rap. Um, but I've been listening to the most recent John Doe book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the audio book. Okay. Um, where everybody reads their own chapter. Yeah, yeah. So that's gotten me into all of those bands. Stuff that I haven't listened to in years like Fishbone. Oh, I love And stuff that Fishbone. I never really got into like Gun Club and Tex and the Horseheads. Mm-hmm. And um, Lawn Riders of the Y, all those bands that have chapters in the most recent John Doe book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they speak so evocatively of that era of L.A. It's so neat because New York and L.A. were such incredibly distinct scenes. And, and my my area, if I have an area of expertise, it was mostly on the New York stuff. But there's this there's this wonderful, very genuine diversity in L.A. punk from mm-hmm. the late 70s and early 80s with queer representation and you've got more Latinos in, mm-hmm. in the punk scene yeah. uh, in, in L.A. And New York is, you know, if we count Forest Hills, Queens as a suburb, and we probably should, it's just a lot of suburban white kids coming mm-hmm. to the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. And it's great. And I'm mm-hmm. not knocking. I adore the Ramones. I, yeah. I wrote a play about the Ramones. I love the Ramones. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I love television. All that stuff is great. But there's so much different stuff going into the pot mm-hmm. in L.A. And the fact that Los Lobos were kind of part of that scene. Yes. Um, and they would show up at these punk shows with a fucking accordion. Yeah. <laughs> is so exciting to yeah. me. And so I've been reading more about about that era. Not just the John Doe books, but the um, – the Mark Spitz book about L.A. punk. Um, we got the Neutron Bomb. Oh, okay. Which talks a lot about how there was just room for different kinds of fans in L.A. Yeah. Whereas New York was kind of exclusionary. There's really mm-hmm. no other way to put it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of, you know, those shows, those hardcore matinees at CB's were just really, really white. Yeah. Really, really white. And we didn't, aside from Bad Brains, who were technically from D.C., but kind of had to move up to New York, um, 
we really did not have, you know, we didn't have a Ron Reyes, we didn't have a Fishbone, we didn't have an Untouchables, we didn't have yeah. any of that oh, stuff. Oh, the Untouchables are Untouchables are great, So right? great. But I, I, and Fishbone I saw so many times. So many times. Well, you couldn't, because you'd never be disappointed. So There great. was no such thing as a shitty Fishbone show. Yeah, You were so guaranteed great. for like 12 bucks, mm-hmm. you were guaranteed the best night of your year. Yeah. And they, what was fun about Fishbone is that you, they would, they were so eclectic, mm-hmm. they would go on bills with Anybody. Mm-hmm. The people I saw open for Fishbone. I saw Schoolie D open for yeah. uh, uh, Fishbone. I saw two live crew oh, yeah, open yeah. for oh Fishbone. I saw the, the Red Hot Chili Poppers open for Fishbone. Okay. Dead Milkmen were on that two live <laughs> wow. crew bill. I saw Blue Oyster Cult and Violent Femmes open for Fishbone. Wow. Um, because you could just pop them anywhere. Like, yeah, I'll see Fishbone. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care what, what else I'm seeing, what else is on the bill. I'm always mm-hmm. going to be in the mood for Fishbone. Yes. Well, you are fun to listen to. Thank you so much for joining me today. I was so honored to be asked. So fun. Where can people find you online? Where can people find out about what you're doing, what's happening? Um, well, given that social media is killing me, I'm still on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just at John Ross Bowie across platforms. Okay. So I do that on the Twitter and the, and the Instagram. And um, believe it or not, I think I still have a Tumblr. Wow, okay. Yeah, why not? Well, I'm old school that way. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's taking over my dreams, waking me out of my sleep. I think I'm coming apart. The Margaret Show is an Erios production with editing by Tracy Levy and original music by Garrison Starr. Never miss an episode of The Margaret Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I don't know where to start. Coming out of the dark. Powered by ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.